Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. It's good to be back today. I'm just encouraged to hear of things like that. I'm thinking of a colleague that I work with, Ken Samples, and one of his uh, favorite quotes, I think it's from Yaroslav Pelikan, is that the church is always more than a school, but it should never be less than a school. Uh, that uh, you, know, you just see throughout our history the importance of education. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here because that's what we're about. And what I would like to cover or talk about today is, you know, yesterday I kind of presented this nice clean case of how science and Christianity always fit well together. And what I've found in my experience is that there are always these challenges that come up. And if you're at all like me, one of the things that keeps me from speaking up is what do I do when that question comes up that I don't know how to answer? (laughs) And I recall, uh, actually, before I started working at Reasons to Believe, which I've been doing now for just over 18 years, had an opportunity. uh, I was working at a a college over at UC Riverside, and I had an opportunity to come and present my research at a conference they were having, and it was over at UCLA, and so I drove over to UCLA for the day. And I'd given, or, you know, I gave my talk, uh, uh, dealt with traffic, that was just a joy. Uh, never underestimate how bad LA traffic can be. But nonetheless, I ended up got there, I was a little bit late, but uh, went through the talk. There was many other talks during the conference that day. And during one of the talks, there was a fellow from NASA who was an astrobiologist. You know, granted, this was, remember, this was uh, 15, 20, or 20, 25 years ago now. And he was talking about just various things related to life, talked about what, you know, some of the oldest fossils of where we found life on Earth and what it looks like. <clears throat> and for, I would say, largely just a prompting by God. I don't know why I came up with this question or why it felt important, but it felt like it was important to ask. So I raised my hand, and a fellow called on me, and I asked, you know, because he was talking about the, the oldest life we found on Earth. And the question I asked him was, at what point would we be able to tell the difference between a created and a naturalistic origin of life? And he kind of looked at me, and I could tell he didn't quite get my question, so I reframed it a little bit. And it was kind of a fascinating dynamic. Apparently, there were people in the back of the room. I was just kind of focused on this fellow. Some people were like, oh, you must be one of those creationists, and all sorts of weird stuff going on in the background. But this fellow asked the question, or you know, kind of couldn't see, and I kind of explained it, said it seemed like to me that if life was created, that would have a different signature than if it was naturalistic. And so we kind of went back and forth, and he finally understood my question, and his response was, I've never thought about that. I don't know how to answer that. I'm like, all right, I appreciate an honest answer like that. And so we kind of went on. That question, though, prompted a discussion around the dinner table that night. So a colleague, or myself sitting with about eight to ten of my colleagues, and a fairly prominent colleague from the institution I was working at uh, looked over at me. He goes, you know, your question I found fascinating because I'd never thought about the possibility of testing the supernatural. And we had about a 45-minute conversation around the dinner table. Some people thought, no, supernatural doesn't have anything to do with science. So we had this conversation, and you know, I'd talk about how there was a beginning to things, and that kind of looks like a beginner, or you know, throughout design, some of the stuff that Eric was talking about last night. And honestly, I didn't say a whole lot, but in this group of 8 to 10 science colleagues, we're having this 45-minute long discussion about that. And at some point in time, I said, you know, if you've got a beginning, that looks like a beginner. If you've got design, that looks like a designer. That, that seems to point towards the supernatural. And, and my colleague who is, uh, who'd pro- started the conversation, he goes, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but in what universe are you talking about? Now, I don't know whether you get the reference there, but this idea that we, our universe is one amongst the vast multiverse was just beginning to gain scientific popularity. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I don't, I don't have that. And so what I recognize and what I want to do today is kind of help provide some tools that when those challenges come up that you see as kind of a threat or antagonistic or just I don't even know how to talk about what are some of the things you can do to handle that? And so how can we use, what I found is that you can actually use these scientific challenges for evangelism. 
And let me explain how. And the idea behind this uh, is, you know, out of 1 Peter 3.15. Sorry, that slide doesn't look the greatest there, but it's 1 Peter 3.15. Notice that it doesn't say we're supposed to be prepared to convince everybody that Christianity is true. What it says we're supposed to do is always be ready, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So predicated in that is that you, you have this hope that people can see and that you're living that way, and that when they ask, you can give them a defense of why you have that hope, and you're going to be gentle and respectful while you're doing it. That means people are going to be asking you questions. That means people are going to be challenging you. What about this? How about this? What about this? And so how can we be ready to do that? And so what I thought I would do this morning is just talk about some of the different challenges I've faced in the last 15, 20 years. I'm going to present them in a nice kind of clean format where it's like, you know, here's the challenge and here's the response to it. The reality is most of these took months, if not years, you know, a few years to kind of actually for the science to play out or me to get the information I need. So don't think of these as, okay, I've just got all these little capsules and I'm going to have a challenge and come back later today and have the answer. It may take a while, but nonetheless, I found these principles to be very effective in helping me be confident to be able to speak up and not worry about the challenges that may come because I can actually be very confident that Christianity will show itself to be true no matter how it's challenged. And so the principles that I found, the first one is just learn to stay calm. Um, when this challenge came up, my immediate response was, I don't know what to say. So I just got really quiet. I just quit talking. I didn't, you know, in retrospect, I could have asked questions. Well, what, you know, what, what does the multiverse look like? Or, you know, just kind of flesh that out. But I just, I kind of panicked and I just quit talking. And I've learned it's okay, let's just stay calm. This is ha- I, part of why I know this works is that it's happened enough that where I've learned to stay calm, it's like, okay, let's step back, see what's going on here, get a lay of the land, figure out what the questions are. Sometimes I find that the questions or challenges that are being thrown out are not really what I thought they were, and they're not nearly as uh, large as I thought they were. Second part is it's important to understand the claims because very often what people will bring up is a claim that is being made in the popular literature. And as I go look at what the popular claim is and ultimately track it back to what's actually being said in the scientific literature, the more technical literature, I realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff that's being added on here. I'll give you an example of one of those here shortly. Even more important, though, than understanding the claim. I mean, you know, if, if somebody's looking for a scientific answer, you need to be able to come and engage them with a scientific discussion about that. But even more important than that is that it's very important to know the Scripture. And why that's important is that when I was first challenged with the multiverse, my immediate thought was, well, if a multiverse exists, that can't be, you know, Christianity and the multiverse, they're opposed to one another. How can that possibly be? And I ended up carrying on what I just, I, I don't know, maybe this is my term, but it's a, it was like unnecessary apologetic baggage. It was this thing that's like, I've got to argue against the multiverse and show that it's not true. And it's like, well, let's go in and dig into what scripture has to say about this and see. And, I, and, and as I did that, I found, lo and behold, you know, that's, there's a whole lot more about this that I hadn't thought about just simply because I'd never thought about it. And then, so once you've stepped back and stood, stayed calm, you kind of learned to understand what the science has to say, you know what your scriptures have to say, then ask the question, how can I use this to advance the gospel? I'm going to give you three examples where that's played out for me. In every one of these, I don't have the final scientific answer. I can talk to people who believe one side, or I can talk to people who believe the other side, but in all instances, I see, hey, there's an opportunity to engage the gospel here, to talk about the gospel and advance that. And so here, let's go, let's go start one. This is a scientific discovery, well, discovery is a little bit, it's a, it's a popular press article, but it says, you know, that this is actual quotes, all of these are. The detection of miniature black holes by the Large Hadron Collider could prove the existence of parallel universes and show that the Big Bang did not happen, scientists believe. 
And so I actually went in and read through in the paper, and it turns out that what the paper was arguing was not nearly this grandiose from the scientific literature. But nonetheless, it brings up this idea that our universe isn't all that there is, that our universe is just one amongst this vast multiverse reality out there. And the question is, what do we do with that? How do, how do, we, how do we handle that? And, and I can tell you this, when I first encountered the multiverse, or when I first first thinking about this from an ap apologetic perspective, I was actually getting ready to give a talk on the multiverse for the organization that I work for, Reasons to Believe. And I was kind of doing the last preparations for it, and I was giving it later that day, and I'm reading this article, and I realized, oh, wait a second. There's reason, and my thought was, to say, you know, there's no reason to think a multiverse exists. We can recast those as a, as a universe. And so therefore, once you've got a universe, all the stuff that I talked about, about what science has found, points to a beginning, constant laws of physics, expanding, that aligns with the, what the Bible says. And so now the multiverse comes along, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. And as I'm reading and getting ready for this, I realize, you know, there's actually reasons to think that a multiverse might exist. I'm like, okay, so what do I do with that? And, and the reason why that's important, think about that for a second. I can make an argument that given our universe, we find that our universe is expanding. We know that constant laws govern the universe. We look back, it looks like it has a beginning. That, that lines pretty clearly with what Scripture says. But now, if a multiverse exists, even if our universe had a beginning, that's not anything particularly important. There could be other universes. Things could have existence long before our universe. And our universe, even though it's a beginning, it becomes kind of like a Sunday. Yeah, it's the beginning of this, but it's not the beginning of everything. And so maybe the Bible doesn't have it right. And all the stuff that Eric talked about, about the design and how you have to have the right kind of planet and the right kind of star and the right kind of galaxy and the right kind of climate... Well, if there's this multiverse, there's just this huge realm of space and somewhere that all had to coalesce to be what we need and our existence demands what we need. And so the multiverse seems to get rid of this argument from a beginning and an argument from design simply because there's just a vast, large enough sample size to deal with it. And so it seems like all of, our, my, all of my apologetic arguments for a beginning and for design seem to just go away. So, one of the first senses, all right, let's step back, stay calm. What is the science actually saying about this? And what I found is that when it comes to talking about the multiverse, it's not a trivial thing to define the multiverse. It turns out there's different kinds. And so here I'll give you a little bit of overview of what the multiverse is. Who, who knows what this object is? Speak it out. It's the moon. Now, the cool thing about the moon, there's a lot of cool things about the moon, but the, one of the things that I find interesting about the moon is that the moon is about 200,000 miles away from us. Do you know how fast the speed of light is? Anybody know that off the top of their head? 186,000 miles per second. So the moon is 200,000 miles away, Speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That means I'm not seeing, when I go out and look in the sky, I am not seeing the moon as it looks right now. I'm seeing the moon as it looked roughly one second ago. All right, that's cool. Let's put that in the corner. Let's go out a little further away. This is the Andromeda galaxy. It's about two and a half million light years away from us, which means... I am not seeing the Andromeda galaxy as it looks right now. I am seeing it as it looked two and a half million years ago. All right, so let's go a little further out. This is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Uh, kind of eclipsed in some sense by the James Webb has taken a similar image. But the important or the, fun, the fascinating part about this is that there are objects in this field where light has been traveling towards the Earth for 8, 9, 10, maybe 11 billion years. Which means that I'm not seeing these objects as they look now. I'm seeing them as they looked 8, 9, 10, 11 billion years ago. And if I keep looking further, going further and further away, it takes light longer and longer to get there. And the most distant light that we can see is actually the cosmic microwave background radiation. 
That is light that has been traveling towards us for almost 14 billion years. Now, that raises an interesting point. As I've gone further and further away, it's taken light longer and longer and longer to get to me. The universe is only 14 billion years old. That means that there's a maximum distance away from the earth that we, that we could possibly see. It's not a limit of, oh, I just need a better telescope. It's a fundamental limit of it's impossible to see further because there's no way light or any sort of information could get from that object to us. And what that does is it allows me to define a region called the observable universe. And so I'm going to show this animation here because there's this bad animation that everybody has this picture of. of uh, you know, it's kind of like you've got this speck of stuff and you know it ex kind of expands and blows up and you can see all the stars and moons stars and planets and galaxy coming out and it gives an entirely wrong picture of how things began a much more accurate picture would be you know it's like you're just kind of watching and boom it just everything's there and it just fills space and if we were to lay down a couple of markers and ask how far were things and then watch how things grow, eventually if we come back at a later point in time, we're going to find that the further things were to start, so like the distance between that and that was that originally, you'll find that it's grown faster and this distance was shorter and it's grown more slowly. That's the telltale signature of an expanding universe. And so if we keep letting it continue on, you know, the universe just continues to expand. And if we zoom out, we eventually will see that there's this boundary that is our observable universe, and it's circular or spherical, not because we're at the center of anything special. It's at the center because we've defined the observable universe for observers on Earth. We could do it for the Andromeda galaxy, and that would shift the center 2.5 million light years towards the Andromeda galaxy. But nonetheless, there's a maximum distance we can see and now that we've got this observable universe defined, we can now talk about what is a multiverse. You know, multiverse as opposed to universe. One verse, many verses. We now have a verse defined. I'm going to use it as this observable universe, the maximum distance we can see. The multiverse is just anything outside of that. And so you could have where you've got our observable universe as one, and there's just a whole bunch of them out there kind of call that the Star Wars multiverse, if you will, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. If you get far enough away, it's still kind of expected to be more of the same stuff, but nonetheless, it's entirely different stuff than we can see. Or it could be that where there's our region of stuff, you could have other pockets of stuff where the laws of physics look different, where the speed of light might be faster, or there's only two spatial dimensions, or the weak nuclear force doesn't exist. But nonetheless, there's these other, I don't want to call them universes, but other realms where there's other, you know, you could define observable universes in there, but nonetheless, we're not connected with them at all. And so there's just more of the same stuff and then entirely other stuff. Uh, if you've read C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, The, the Land Between the Worlds, uh, that, that, that's kind of the vision here. You kind of come up out of one, move over, drop into another one. It's an entirely new universe, if you will. There's ways you can get them with quantum mechanics. But nonetheless, now we have this, we can talk about what is a multiverse. There's physical realms just beyond the observable universe. That's the generic definition. But you can kind of have this level one, which is the Star Wars universe, just more of the same stuff very far away. You can have where there are different bubble universes, and these are really far away, infinitely far away. You can have one that's kind of a quantum mechanical, uh, you know, if you've ever seen Back to the Future, you know, Marty McFly comes back, does things. Now he's on a different trajectory. That the the universe just changes. It's kind of a quantum mechanical universe. Uh, there's there's another way. You know, just a level four is kind of anything beyond that. And so now we've kind of dug into the scientific literature, figured out, okay, here's what the multiverse is. Now we can ask the question: How does that impact, or does that? now prevent me from being able to give a defense for the hope that is within me, that Scripture is an accurate description. And what I realized is that the question was not, does the multiverse exist or not? The question actually became, okay, someone who claims that Christianity is not correct or that naturalism, that there is no God, 
they need to have certain things in order to, for the multiverse to make their claims work. And specifically, and by, by naturalistic, I mean uh, this is the view that there is no God, the, the physical world is all there is. So if their multiverse is going to work, it's got to be self-contained. There can't be a beginning, there can't be any design, or else you've still got beginning and design, that points to a beginner and a designer. Uh, you know, if you want to call it science, it's got to explain our observable universe and make testable predictions. Um, it's got to produce sufficient variety. That's kind of a technical reason that I'm not going to get in here. Our universe obviously must be one of the outcomes. And again, if it's going to be naturalistic, all life m must be completely physical. And what I'm getting at by that, it's really kind of another way of saying self-contained, is that if the naturalist wants to say, yes, the multiverse explains everything, then everything has to be just arrangement of matter and energy. If there's anything about, like humans, which there's a physical and a spiritual component or a non-physical component, then you can make the multiverse as large as you want and you're still not going to explain humanity. And so it's really just another way of saying self-contained. <clears throat> and so once I realized that the question wasn't, does a multiverse exist or not, it's, are these things met, met? Now I'm like, okay, so what does the science have to say about that? Well, if you're just going to, uh, the, the questions kind of change because, you know, as, as Eric was talking about, there's a lot of things that had to be true for life. And when you look at life developing here on earth, it's just a very rare process. And people say, okay, yeah, it's rare. And then if we're the only universe, you, you can talk about how rare life is because it does seem rare. But the question changes in the multiverse because in the multiverse, anything that can happen does happen. And so for life in the universe, okay, you could say, yeah, we're, we're rare, but the multiverse is big enough to make it happen. But now you have to ask the question, are there other kinds of life that could exist in the multiverse? And it turns out scientists know of other ways you could get life. This may sound really bizarre, but it is true, is that you can have just thermal fluctuations. Thermal fluctuations happen out in the recesses of space all the time. Normally, they're just small and inconsequential, but it's entirely possible that you could have a thermal fluctuation where all the atoms that are necessary for my brain exist fluctuate into existence, and I become, there's this brain just floating in the reaches of space for a brief moment that says, oh, I exist, and then poofs out of existence. And you say, wow, that's incredibly rare. Exactly. But in the multiverse, everything happens. What's interesting is that when you go in and start to ask the question, is it more likely that we're actually regular, ordinary people who have some sort of history on Earth, or are we a Boltzmann brain? It turns out that it's far more likely that we're a Boltzmann brain. And so if we want to claim that there's this evolutionary history to life, and we want to use the multiverse to explain that, we now have to explain why we're not Boltzmann brains. And uh, yeah, I was getting a little bit technical here, but really the point I wanted to make in here is that if you want to argue that we're actual observers and not Boltzmann brains, you end up saying we're not typical. And that's what all of these kind of probability arguments were saying. We're not typical. We're, un we're unexpected. We're atypical. And so you still end up with design arguments, even in the multiverse. Even more interesting, you know, again, somebody who wants to use the multiverse this way, is that if you're not careful, you actually undermine the very, the very basis we need for doing science. Because one of the things I can tell, is that, tell you is that when you're doing science, you never come up with, okay, there's, it's either this explanation or that explanation. And so we do an experiment and we decide it's this. That's the way it's always presented and it never works out that way. Because for any set of data you give me, I can come up with a whole bunch of explanations for that data. In fact, when I was in college, undergraduate, taking a physics lab, we, my partner and I we were making measurements of tracks on a, or sparks on a track, and one of them just didn't fit, and we were supposed to give air, reasons for the error, and my partner, which I thought was kind of amusing, said, oh yeah, it was a passing black hole. Now, exactly, you laugh. Of course it wasn't a passing black hole, except that a passing black hole could cause that data, and in the multiverse, somewhere that happens. How in the world, if a multiverse happens and can explain any rare event, what are you doing when you do science? 
The whole point of science, in my mind, is to say, this is what actually happened here. But if the multiverse becomes an explanation for things, ultimately you're going to get, well, here's just all the possible explanations. We can't really decide between them. Because somewhere, every one of these happens, and there's no way to determine whether that was what happened here or not. And so I think if we're not careful, the multiverse could actually completely undermine science. And I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but if you've got a whole generation of people who are raised, the multiverse explains all these things, that's going to be their mindset. And so I think this, is going to, this actually could have a big problem. Uh, the multiverse could be for a naturalistic version of science. But then I goes, okay, so what does Scripture have to say about this? And what I found is that I looked through Scripture, it's like, lo and behold, the Bible actually describes other realms. This is not the only thing that exists. The Bible talks about the angelic realm. Now, granted, they're spiritual, not physical, but there's other realms beyond this universe that God created. And the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be something new as well. The Bible actually kind of talks about things in terms of a multiverse. You know, now it, there's part of it that says, well, why would God create a multiverse? I mean, he only needs one here, but, but we have that same sort of problem. I mean, why would God create a universe with a billion, trillion stars and trillions of galaxies when he only needs one? It's like, well, he did that anyway. I mean, even if, we're, even if we just restrict ourselves to this universe, what we find is that God's economy doesn't match ours. You know, we think that's wasteful, to a lot of energy, but it's just not, the, that just doesn't bother God. I mean, he created a billion trillion stars and trillions of galaxies in principle so that just for us to be here. So the idea that he created a bunch of other universes really doesn't bother me in that. And even more fascinating is that when you ask the question, if you put the multiverse now in a naturalist worldview, you have these problems of what about Boltzmann brains and what about, you know, does it undermine science? Well, now you put the multiverse in a Christian worldview and we're here because God created the union of the physical and spiritual and humanity here, not everywhere else. There is actually one thing that's going on. And so you're not using the multiverse to explain all the rare things. You're just saying there may be a multiverse and yet we can still determine what's actually going on here. So the Christian worldview actually solves the problems that plague these naturalistic multiverse models. And so what initially appeared to be a threat to Christianity, or at least to my apologetic for Christianity, as I studied it, I realized, you know, in the multiverse, there's still a beginning. In the multiverse, there's still design. And whether the multiverse exists or not, if someone thinks a multiverse exists, great, I can come in and talk to him about Christianity. And if someone doesn't think a multiverse exists, I can still talk to him about Christianity, and I can bring the gospel into that conversation. It's no longer I've got to show that the multiverse does or doesn't exist. It's like even in the context of a multiverse, whether it exists or not, there's still, I can give a reason for the hope that, resists, that resides within me. So I talked a lot about that and who's afraid of the multiverse, if you want to see. Now, and I will say, if you, if you go back and listen to podcasts and writings, you'll find that there was the better part of a year, year and a half, where I'm like, I don't know what to do with the multiverse. <laughs> and I say, well, maybe we just lose the design argument because the multiverse solves that. So I don't want to paint this as this, okay, I went out and studied it a couple days later, I got it. It was really more, it took a while, but nonetheless, as the science continued to develop and as I understood my scripture, it's like, oh, as Christian, I don't have anything to fear about the multiverse. I think actually the naturalists have more to fear. I think it causes more problems for them. So let's kind of shift gears, maybe something that's a little, little closer to home and uh, maybe irritates all of us a little more. This was a, a paper that was published. It says an estimated 22% of stars in the Milky Way galaxy that are similar to the sun have planets like Earth in their habitable zone or Goldilocks zone. And since there are about 20 billion stars similar to the sun in the galaxy alone, the possibility of planets favorable to life are unfathomable. Just in our Milky Way galaxy alone, that's 8.8 .8 billion throws of the biological dice. So this is taking everything Eric talked about last night, saying you've got to have all this stuff to work, and saying, you know what, in just in our galaxy alone, there are eight almost 10 billion planets that can host life like Earth does. 
See, my apologetic or my defense had been, there's all this stuff that shows that earth is unique. There's no other place like that. And now you've got somebody coming along saying, yeah, it's just as unique as all the other 8 billion planets in our galaxy that can support life. What do I do with that? <laughs> and even I, I could actually respond to that charge, but just like with the multiverse, the question came up, you know, you can, I can give you all these statistics and here it's one part in this and one chance in this and you got to have all this. And, and my thought was, what if as astronomers are looking out, they find the signal of life on another planet? As a Christian, what would I do with that? And it got me thinking, is there life out there? What would I do with that? Because, see, I can give you a lot of reasons, you know, and it echoes what Eric said last night, of why I think Earth is the only place that hosts life. But as a scientist, I can also give you some reasons why I think there might be lots of life out there. It's a little hard to read this, but this is a graph that shows all of the different elements by their abundance. And notice here, this is a logarithmic scale, so between here and here, that's a hundred times more abundant. One of the fascinating things about this, and we're not going to go into all this, and I'll, I'll read it off there so you can see. This is hydrogen, the most abundant element in the universe. That makes sense. Helium is the next most abundant, and if you're familiar with your periodic chart, it goes hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine. And you would expect that the abundance, given the way things form, would go hydrogen would be the most abundant, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine. Turns out it doesn't actually do that. The hydrogen and helium follow that, but the next most abundant element in the universe, can anybody read that? Carbon. You know what the next most abundant element in the universe is? Oxygen. When you take your biology courses, what are the most important elements for life? Hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. Lo and behold, those elements work out to be the most abundant elements in the universe. So it's like our universe is set up to produce the elements that life requires. And starting about 30-ish years ago, a little over 30 years ago now, we actually started finding planets outside our solar system. So now we know of the eight in our solar system, Pluto never was a planet. I know that, that's controversial to say, but Pluto never was a planet. I feel bad for Clyde Tombaugh, though, because he was the guy who discovered Pluto. Um, but nonetheless, we found planets outside our solar system. And what you'll notice is that as the years go on, we find more and more planets. And what that was just a reflection of is that as we built more and more sensitive detectors, we find lots of planets out there. And this is another similar sort of plot where you see here, we're looking now at the mass of the planet. So Jupiter's down here and the masses of Jupiter. What you find is that as you get less massive, the number goes up dramatically. And so astronomers can use these sorts of numbers and say, okay, if this is what we can see, and this is the way the planets are distributed, what kind of planets are in our galaxy? And it turns out that I mean, obviously larger planets are easier to find, abundance increases as the mass decreases, but as you do those calculations, what you find that in our galaxy alone, there are 160 billion planets, Neptune size or larger, and there are 400 billion planets, Earth or larger. On average, you know, I, think, I think it's about 200 billion planets, or 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. On average, there are two Earth-sized or larger planets in every star that exists, just in our galaxy. Now, so our universe makes the elements that life requires, and our universe seems to make the planets a place where all that life can require. And if you throw in the idea that, as many people will say, Copernicus showed that there's nothing unusual about the earth and that what we find here on earth is what we expect to find out there, you can see why it's pretty good. It's, it's at least reasonable to think that life might exist out there in the cosmos somewhere. And so that was my question. What if we find it? And again, my initial thought was, ooh, that would be, I don't know, as a Christian, how would we deal with that? I don't, I don't think that would work. And so again, I stepped back and said, all right, what does this science say? I'm like, yeah, there's actually good reason 
There's lots of planets out there, lots of planets in the habitable zone. And even though, you know, I mean, I don't want to count for all the habitable zones here, but there's lots of planets. It's, it's not unreasonable to expect that there might be one that matches the conditions where life could exist. And so I go over and look, ask, what does scripture have to say? And I find out that scripture says very little about life beyond the earth. It talks about the angelic realm, but it says really almost nothing out there. But as I've looked at what Christians have talked about and thought about life out there, I find that Christians have been talking about this question for centuries. This is not a new thing. This isn't like science comes along and says, oh, there's planets out there, and Christians are saying, ooh, what do we do with that? You can actually document Christians talking about this back to the time of Christ. You can talk about uh, believers before that talking about it. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me to find that Adam and Eve were arguing about this in the Garden of Eden. I think this is just such a fascinating topic. But you all know who Galileo Galilei is, right? Heard that name at least. Very devout Christian. He argued that God only created life here on earth. And he did that, you know, studying the scriptures and thinking about it. Do you know who Johannes Kepler is? Heard that name. Also, very devout Christian, contemporary of Galileo. He thought God created life on all the different bodies that were out there. Now, we now know that at least in our solar system, there's no other life. But here you've got two devout Christians arguing. One says, oh, there's only life here on earth. The other one says, no, there's life everywhere. What you'll find is that you look through the history of Christianity, and there's, there is no, it only has to be life here on earth. You'll find that Christians have thought, not only might there be life out there, but if there's life out there, how would it impact Christianity? Because if life is out there, I mean, you know, to take what Eric said, that when we look at earth, there are these incredible number of features that need to be for life to be here. And what I used to argue was that it's so improbable for all these to come up that there's only one place in all the universe where we would expect it. And I realized the, the, the situation is actually worse than that. It's like, given all that life requires, we wouldn't expect it anywhere in the universe. The only reason I would argue that it's here is that God has prepared earth for life. But that raises the question, did he do that somewhere else? Scripturally speaking, I can't find anything that argues against it. So maybe he did. I think it's a fascinating theological question. The cool part is it's a fascinating scientific question too. And as Christians have thought about this, they've actually thought about, so what if, I mean, we're talking sentient life here, not just bacterial life, but what if we find sentient life? You know, would they, would they have fallen? Well, there's a possibility, you know, Christians have talked about this. Maybe God created life that never fell wouldn't have need of redemption. Or maybe they fell, but there's no means of redemption, kind of like the angelic realm. Or maybe they fell, but Christ's death here on earth is universal and that it pays for all. Or maybe God has some other means of redemption. Or maybe, and again, this is where the theology becomes real important. We remember that God is one God in three persons. The second person of the Godhead, God the Son, took on a human nature, fully God, fully man, neither dividing the substances nor confusing them, lived on earth, lived a sinless life, paid for all. Now, we are created in God's image, but we don't fully reflect God's image. So maybe God created other beings that reflect his image in a different way. And in the same way Christ took on a human nature, maybe he also took on a Klingon nature. Now, I don't know which of those are correct. All of those have some level of discomfort for me. But it's not, I don't get to decide what God did or didn't do based on my level of discomfort. My, I get to Look at, say, what does Scripture say? What do Christians who hold the Bible in high regard say? And what is, what's acceptable within the bounds of Christianity? And so the Christians have thought about this for centuries. And in many ways, this would fit within sound Christian doctrine. So I don't have to worry about it. Maybe it is I'm talking to someone who thinks earth is the only place where life exists. Well, great. Doesn't that point to a creator? And look at all that he's done to make sure we have a place. Doesn't that show a great deal of love for him? Or, or maybe God has created life throughout the universe. And, you know, would they be just as rebellious? Or would they have the same problems we have? And would they be separated from their creator? And, you know, God, you know here on earth, Christ died for our sins. You know, we're still having a conversation about the gospel. 
doesn't matter whether life exists or not. In any case, I can use that to advance the gospel. <laughs> Another fun one here, global warming. I will just say this is a, my study in this has found that it's very hard to have an actually good discussion about this. And I did a highly scientific study of one Sunday school class. Thank you, I appreciate the laugh. Um, where I had a Sunday school class that I was in, and I had, and these, these were older, uh, you know, kind of my age or older, so it wasn't, uh, you know, a little bit people who thought about things. And I said, all right, I'd like everybody to line up, and this is the way I'd like you to line up. I had them all stand up, and I said, all right, diehard conservative over here, bleeding heart liberal over here. Just line up where you were. And so everybody got up and lined up in there, and I actually had people all the way across the spectrum there. I said, all right, I'm going to change the picture here, change the labels, and move as you need to. I said, all right, this is now global warming is a hoax, and global warming is going to destroy the planet. Move where you need to now. And there were two people that switched places, right in the middle here. So what does that tell me? Even within the church, we're thinking about global warming politically, as opposed to theologically. And we never, and so then whatever we're doing in there, we've already politically thought about it. We're using the science to support our political position instead of thinking theologically and scientifically and allowing that to determine what's the best way to think about it politically. And so among the things that have come out in there, I'm not going to give you any talk. Global warming is such a wide-ranging scientific topic that to get the science behind it, it's just, it, that's not interesting here. You, there's plenty of things you can go read. I can give you resources to go look there. But really what I was thinking about, you know, when we look at the earth, one of the things that we find, and this, again, Eric highlighted a lot of these things, that earth is an amazingly designed planet for life, especially when we look at what earth looks like today compared to what it looked like before. Because in its earliest configuration, earth had an incredibly dense, hazy atmosphere. It was covered in liquid water, but those liquid water, we go out and look at oceans and we see this deep blue. They would have been a very murky green color because they'd have been filled with iron. There would have been no oxygen in the atmosphere. There's no planets, or no, sorry, no continents on the earth because there's, there's just no structure. It's formless and void. And at its earliest moments, there's no life. And even from the earliest moments, it's just this very simple life that's there. And in the last, I would argue, four and a half billion years, it's gone, there have been these huge astronomical changes that the sun was probably 30 to 40% dimmer than it is today, and it's slowly gotten brighter over time. And that could have huge consequences for the temperature of the planet. I mean, you know, we're, we're concerned about temperature changes of one to two degrees C, the types of stuff we're talking about here are hundreds of degrees C that that could cause change. Um, we look at geophysical changes, just the change from uh, no continents to volcanic activity and continents forming, that has traumatic, dramatic consequences for what's going on in the atmosphere around. Uh, again, these geophysical changes could also cause dramatic things. There's, uh, we've seen just from these geophysical changes, huge ice ages where ice, ice pretty much encircled the whole earth and other times where it's just this really hot house where it's very steamy around. Again, huge consequences. Our atmospheric has gone from absolutely no oxygen in the atmosphere, no free oxygen, to where we've got now 20% of our oxygen, or our atmosphere is composed of free oxygen. Again, huge changes in the atmosphere, and the life has gone from this simple organisms to this incredibly diverse array of life. And every one of these could have dramatically changed the conditions on Earth. But one thing that is true is that in all of these changes, the global, average global temperature of Earth has never deviated outside about a 20 degree Celsius window. Right around that window where liquid water could exist. And so we see it's just got this amazing design to it. And so the question now is, okay, now that humans are there, are we gonna be able to destroy that? And these are my humans, or at least some of my humans. One of them's a cousin, but uh, uh, some of my humans in there. We like fireworks. I like fireworks a lot. 
But that's the question out there. Are we going to now destroy this incredibly well-designed earth? And I, and I think that's one part of the theological question. Because when we look at Scripture, we see that God has designed creation. He didn't just create it a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. We see that God sustains creation, that he, uh, when the, with the life that's on the ground, he extends their hand, the life flourishes, he withdraws his hand, it, it withers and perishes, he extends his hand again, renews the face of the earth. That God teaches us through creation that the heavens declare his glory. That there is a purpose and a function for creation. But we also see that humanity is charged to care for creation. Uh, The first commands given to the first humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, rule over it and subdue it. We are supposed to take care of this creation. And that our sin affects creation. There's no doubt about that. And what gets missed in this political discussion is, I would argue, that often the conservative end of this misses that we're charged to be God's stewards in creation. That we need to not forget that. We need to properly care for creation. As well-designed, as beautifully engineered as it is, we're supposed to care for creation, and we can't miss that. And as much as we are sinful and have problems, we need to make sure that we're not worshiping the creation. That I think those are the two political errors we tend to get into because we as Christians don't come into this and think theologically. In my assessment, the way to look at this is God has beautifully engineered this planet and the idea that we could inadvertently destroy it really is kind of an arrogant and the amount of hubris in that is remarkable. But on the flip side, we are called to care for it, and we, our consequences, our actions have dramatic consequences here on earth. And so as we see that what we're doing is causing problems, we need to step up, take responsibility, and deal with that. That theologically is a very sound way to stand. Scientifically, my questions that flow out of that are, is the globe warming? And the the answer to that is unequivocally, yes, it is definitely warming. Are humans part of that? And the answer to that is unequivocally yes. The question is how much? The, the, the best I've been able to ascertain talking to my pe- the people I know who are climate scientists, that it's somewhere of all the global warming that is happening, we're somewhere between 20 and 80% of the cause. Still a lot of uncertainty there. But there's no way you can say we're not the problem, but we're also not the only part of the problem. Those two I think there's pretty good answers to. The third question is how big a deal is it? I mean, the earth has been hotter in the past. The earth has been colder in the past. Is this really a big deal? And if we don't understand that, we can't really get a good answer to the fourth problem, or the fourth question is, what do we do about it? And I've done enough stuff where I've tried to solve a problem where I didn't understand it, and my, though well-motivated and highly good-intentioned, I end up making the problem worse because I don't understand the nature of the problem yet. And so my contention is, let's go at this from a theological perspective first. God has created and designed things well. We need to remember that. We also need to remember that he's given us stewardship of creation. Okay, what does the science have to say? Is it warming? Yes. Are we apart? Yes. How big a deal is it? Good question. Let's get some good answers to that. What do we do about it? And now, politically speaking, this is where we can have a great deal of Progress is not the right word, but, but uh, contribution, because now politically what we're asking the question is, okay, let's have solutions from across the political spectrum and see, particularly let's evaluate them by two criteria, which of these solutions take care of the planet and take care of humanity? Because if we're just taking care of the planet at the expense of humanity, that's problematic, If we're just taking care of humanity at the expense of the planet, that's problematic. And if God has designed things as he says he has, then the best solutions are going to be the ones that take care of humanity and the planet. And so let's look for those. But notice that, think how that would play out in a discussion of, okay, I'm talking to someone who thinks global warming is going to destroy the planet. I can have this discussion, engage the science, and I'm still able to bring the gospel into this. How has God designed this so that we can take care of the planet and the people on it? And if I'm believing someone, or I'm talking to someone who thinks global warming is a hoax, I can come in and 
have that same sort of discussion where the emphasis is not on the global warming anymore. It's like, okay, what's God doing and how can we be a part of what God's doing and how can we take care of the people that he knows are important and this planet that he's made for us to live? We're having a conversation about the gospel. So again, to me, I think the most important thing in this is to have a mission mindset that when we want to talk about this, whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about the multiverse, whether we're talking about evolution, talking about life on other planets, whatever the particular scientific discussion, take a step back, stay calm, understand what the actual scientific claims are, know what your scripture has to say. And to me, I think that's, that's the part that I can strongly encourage every one of us to do. I can't say every Christian needs to go out and understand the science. I mean, even as a scientist, I don't understand all the science and all the disciplines. But every Christian is called to be a good theologian, to make sure we know our scriptures well, to study that. And by what I have found is that the better my, I understand my theology, the more I can articulate it and reason through it and think through it, when I'm having these discussions, even in something that I don't have any clue what the actual science we're talking about is, because it's so far outside my field, as I'm talking and engaging and listening, I can see, wait a second, that has theological implications. What do we do there? Let's go talk about that. It's kind of like, you know, the best analogy I have is like the banker who has just handled bills so much they know what a real bill feels like. They don't go out and study, here's all the ways we can counterfeit, because that is an endless pursuit. But if you know what it feels like when something's wrong comes in, you know there's something off, and now you know how to go figure out and pursue it. As Christians, we need to be so familiar with what scripture says and who God is and what, what good theology is, that when we see it, something else, we're like, oh, that's an interesting avenue to pursue. Now I know how. Now here's, and in all likelihood, that's going to be one of the places where God's working in that person's life. And so you're just aligning and joining yourself with where God is already at work instead of having to make them interested in something that I find interesting that they may not have, which is what I spend a lot of my time doing apologetically. Until I realized that's not the way God works in my life. Why would I expect him to work him differently in others? So I'm going to wrap up now. We have some time for question and answer. Hopefully that generated a whole bunch of questions. Text those in. We'll get to those later. And I think Eric is going to come up and talk some more as well.